Hi there and welcome to The Brave. I can't believe it's our season two kickoff. <laughs> I'm your host, Beth and Vincent, and The Brave is a podcast all about resilience and how to deal with the challenges and complexity of life in the 21st century, which, to be honest, I mostly find confusing, but often find extremely frustrating and slightly terrifying. So we explore resilience through a number of lenses. It's not just about personal resilience, but obviously that's part of it. We look at things like um, physical resilience, the resilience of systems, the resilience of people, places and businesses to really get this overarching view on what makes things robust anti-fragile to use the hot and trendy tech term at the moment and what makes things prone to failure or weakness and how do we counteract that so to kick off season two I've got a really exciting guest for you this week I've been speaking to Thomas Pecora who is a former CIA security officer uh, yeah he he was one of those and um, obviously that's the kind of job where being resilient is pretty important and we talk a lot about Thomas's career and kind of how he's dealt with various situations throughout that you know terrorist incidents and scary things like that and also how he's kind of led and motivated a team because being resilient in that kind of situation isn't just about being resilient on your own it's about being resilient as part of a larger unit and how do you kind of make sure that happens so let's jump into it really hope you enjoy it and as you hopefully can tell I am so excited to be back with you. My name is uh, Thomas Pecora I go by Tom I uh, retired from the CIA uh, as a career security officer. I spent 24 years there working in a variety of positions, everything from security to protective operations, bodyguarding that is, counterterrorism, and then security training. And uh, prior to that, I was uh, was born and raised in uh, a town north of Chicago called Milwaukee, and uh, where the big part of my life uh, from those days is I, I was a high school and college wrestler. Wow. So you've, you've had a very extensive and varied career then. Yes, I've, uh, I, I've had, <laughs> I've traveled a lot. I've got uh, probably 60 countries under my belt. A lot of them uh, were repeats. Um, I spent a lot of, most of my time in, in the not so nice places mm. because um, they don't need much security in the nice places. Yeah, and I guess um, the reason why I thought you'd be absolutely fascinating to talk to and interesting to everyone is that um, you must have had a very high stress, um, high kind of, if things go wrong, there's a lot of kind of risk to deal with throughout kind of your time in the CIA. Absolutely. Um, there was uh, the level of responsibility I had, uh, it, it increased uh, exponentially as I went through my career. Uh, to give you an example, my first job with the agency, uh, and that's what we call it, by the way. Uh, in the movies, they call it the company, but we, people who are in, inside do not call it the company. They call it the agency. My, my first job in the agency was I was doing background investigations, and um, it's a very solo job. You're out um, interviewing people, and uh, there there isn't any day-to-day oversight. You're basically on your own. So. There's, that's the beginning of, of, of really layering responsibility, personal responsibility on you. And then I, I ended up in the security duty office, which was like the security watch center for the, uh, for the Washington, D.C. area. And it's there when I was exposed to terrorism. I was uh, on duty work, uh, finishing my <clears throat> first cup of coffee when uh, a, a Pakistani terrorist attacked our front gate or, or the street outside the uh, CIA headquarters. This is 1993, January. 
and um, uh, from that moment on, uh, terrorism and and the fight against that and protecting our people became um, a very, very uh, focal point of my career. Because obviously 9-11 happened during your career and that must have been a really kind of mm. defining and um, stressful, uncertain oh. moment. Yes, yes. And by that time, I was already um, deep in my career. I was actually posted overseas at that time. And uh, I was working um, in, in Asia and I was specifically in the Philippines when, when the when the, the the towers went down, and uh, what's kind of in- interesting is that the architect behind that plan had been working in the Philippines, had been living and working in the Philippines, working as as in uh, doing terrorist activities. His name is Ramsey Yusuf, and um, uh, so the, the 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 father of that methodology, flying a plane into a building, um, had actually been. You know, in my in my area, when when the the towers went down, and there was a lot of terrorism um, going on, and uh, some Americans had been kidnapped, and so we were we were pretty busy just in itself. But when the towers went down, um, it, it changed uh, changed our world. Yeah, uh, from that moment on. Because I imagine everyone listening who was alive at that point in time can remember how it felt to watch on TV. You know, I was 11 and I remember my mom being like, you need to watch this. This is like important, even though it's a bit terrifying. But to be in and amongst it, how, how does it feel? Well, it, 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 was, a, it was a gut punch. Um, and then the next day I had to do some uh, pick up some supplies from an, a, a mall near, near the embassy. And the Filipinos were moving about their business like nothing had changed. And of course, in our life, it, it was a totally different um, perspective. So that was surreal. And knowing what we were getting into uh, in terms of um, the fight, it was uh, we knew we were, we, we, we were in a new game. And um, I know all the all the old um, thought processes had to be reexamined. Mm. And you've written a book about your your kind of time in the in the CIA, and that book has kind of received security clearance, which is why we can talk about the things we can talk about today as well. Um, so if I ask anything that you can't respond to, please just shut me down. But I th- <laughs> I'll tell I'll tell you what I can, and I'll tell yeah. you when I can't. <laughs> awesome, because I think what I'm really interested in is. Um, At an organisational level, you know, the kind of disarray and crisis that I've seen organisations respond to have not been terrorist attacks. It's been a massive kind of press issue or whatever. But how does it how can organisations prepare themselves for these big events, unforeseen events that change the game? Is there any kind of methodology to that at all? Uh, There is. And and the the agency is um, pretty agile. (laughs) <laughs> They're much more agile than than a lot of other federal agencies because of the nature of the work. And for example, when when the when Haiti got hit really badly, we actually were the first elements in the ground uh, in Haiti. We had planes and supplies coming in there before anybody else, because we we are part of our mission is to be prepared to get involved in in um, in different events. And besides intelligence collection, we have a, a side of our organization that's involved in covert action, emphasis on action. Uh, so 
for example, after 9-11, uh, we were the first in in Afghanistan. Our people were out there uh, in uh, just in a matter of weeks and uh, beginning to uh, go after uh, the Al-Qaeda elements. So, I mean, we, our, abil- our ability to put together a team, get the supplies, get, get the logistical stuff ready and deploy, uh, we, are, we, we are built to do this. And to link that back to resilience, kind of the reason I ask is because I think being prepared and being able to act is a big part of resilience. And if your organisation is a bit kind of clunky or slow and it can't adapt to situations, you're not going to be as resilient. And I'm just wondering, again, like with the CIA, do you kind of um, prepare for all events? Do you, do you kind of think about like worst case scenarios and the things that no one else has to think about, but you guys need to be prepared for it? Absolutely. The, um, uh, for example, uh, overseas, there's all kinds of, if, if, when you have people posted all over the world, you have to be ready to support them, whether it's a terrorist attack, uh, and, uh, you know, in, in internal insurgency or revolution in the country, or a um, simple you know, natural disaster. And one of the jobs I had near the end of my career was revamping our emergency action plans and um, uh, getting people prepared to to work in an in an environment where you you know you, you don't have all the niceties, uh, you may not have all the support you need. You know, some countries that we're in, uh, they they barely have running water. Mm. So you, if you're not prepared, um, you number one, you're not going to get your mission done, but but also life is going to be very difficult. Yeah, absolutely. And again, going back to your book, um, so this is kind of more personal to you, but in the book you talk about kind of six leadership principles that you kind of developed or you, you kind of come, came to understand through your work. And I was just wondering if we could talk about those for a bit because I, I found them really interesting and actually um, I really kind of connected with them that, that it was stuff I kind of thought about and think is important. And the first one you talk about is humility. Uh, yes, Um Going through my career, I, there, there, I, I picked up on certain things that really helped me get um, better at my job, um, be more efficient, uh, be more effective. And uh, I came through at a time when basically every job I had, I had a mentor. And it wasn't a formal thing. It was I would come, I would come into a new office because we, we would uh, change positions every two to three years. Mm-hmm. It's it's a part of uh, learning a lot of processes and different jobs, um, but there there often wasn't a big training program for that, so we would have to kind of adapt. And one of the things I found out worked really well for me, <clears throat> pardon me, was to find somebody in that in that new job who really had a good grasp. Maybe somebody who'd been there many years or was a repeater, and I would basically ask them for help. And later on, I realized that that was a strength, um, and it, and it really made a difference. I I had a, a mentor in pretty much every position I was in, and some people think mentors have to be somebody higher up. Um, in my last job, my my mentor in a way was uh, an administrative assistant who had been you know in and around the building for twenty years. She knew everything, so I, I was at her desk probably weekly. And at one point, I asked her about the. We have a we had a new generation coming through, and I asked her, you know, do, do you get a lot of questions from from the newbies that we have? 
And she looked at me and she says, no, they never ask me anything. Interesting. Yes. And that's when I went, okay, this is something that needs to be kind of like even more formalized. How do we, 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 we've got to look at our ego, put it in our pocket, say what's important here. It's getting, it's getting the mission done, whatever your mission is, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, working in a war zone or, uh, helping a company, uh, build its sales force or selling a product. Um, we have to kind of step back and, and say, who can help me here? Who, uh, and how do I get that help? And, the, and people respond very well to sincere requests for assistance. Yeah. So that my first principle is maintain a humble e- ego. And that's really, really helped me uh, in terms of when I come into new, new positions, new areas where I'm not uh, up to speed. There's, there's always somebody who can, who can give you some really good information. Yeah, and I wonder if some people, especially if you're new to an organisation, asking for help, you're worried, will come across as kind of being weak or you think people will think you don't know anything. And have you ever encountered any situations like that or has pretty much on the whole it been quite positive? Oh, no. I mean, I, I've been through a variety of experiences. But if you're, if you're really... Um, mission focused and that's kind of a, a theme for us is you know are, are you uh, are you really serious about getting this done and um, what are you willing to do to make it happen then you're gonna you're gonna put yourself out you're gonna take those risks because in the end if you go if you ask for help from somebody and they're not really um, willing to help you, you just move on to the next to find until you find somebody who can help you yeah. And, uh, and I'll, as I said, a lot of times it's not a higher up. It's somebody um, uh, who, who's probably one of these unseen people. They're in the fabric of the, of the company, but nobody knows, you know, the administrative assistant. Sometimes the janitorial staff knows things that nobody else knows. Yeah, exactly. And often they're kind of overlooked as sources of advice or information. But actually, if you're the person who's willing to build that bridge and go there you'll you'll be in such a better position than the people who don't ask yes and that's why uh, a lot of times one of my principles and and how i came up with these principles is there were you know you, you start to find things that work for you and you and you put it in your pocket and you keep using it and then you find another nugget that works and then by the time my career was over i had all these kind of you know personal principles and um i worked with a leadership uh, expert who, who yeah. whose uh, forte is putting these things together in terms of uh, like a map, and we came up with the the leadership principles, the, and it, all of that was was a formalization of a process of a, of a series of processes I was using and that were very successful for me. And one of those, uh, the the fourth one I listed is uh, solve organizational problems and issues at the lowest level. And that that plays right into what we were talking about before. You know, sometimes the people who really can help you are right at the at the source. When I was in Iraq, we had problems getting people into the green zone, which is the safe area around Baghdad. And I just couldn't uh, I couldn't crack this case. I couldn't figure out what what was holding things up and how I was going to approach it. So I. I, Got in a car and drove right up to the, the checkpoints. And I walked out there and I started talking to the people who were manning the gates. And these were corporals, 
you know, at the lowest level of the military. And they're so used to having people talk down to them. So when somebody walks up who, and, and who's obviously a little bit higher in the food chain and sincerely asks them for some help, it, at first, the, their first response is kind of gruff, but then they realize that you, you know, that you're, you're, you need some help. And next thing you know, they're either telling you the ground truth or they're, or they're directing you to somebody who, who can help you. I love the idea of the ground truth. Like that, that is definitely uh, the name of something I have thought about, but never had a name for, which is, it's like the reality of the situation, which often people will try and cover up or, you know, they're kind of looking after their own back or whatever, but there is like the ground truth of how it really is. Yes. Yes. And that's, as a manager, if you aren't getting enough ground truth, you're steering the ship with no window. You don't know where you're going. You may think you are. And sometimes the people around you at those higher levels, they're going to tell you whatever you want to hear. That's a, that's another benefit of working with people who who are right there uh, where the rubber meets the road. Yeah. And it, was there a kind of a concept of psychological safety at all? And I guess because this is a big thing in tech, right, that people don't mm-hmm. talk about problems because they're worried about recriminations or being humiliated. Oh, that's that's a huge uh, being in the security field. We I mean, naturally, we're not loved. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the best you can hope for is to have somebody talk about you and say, he's a security guy, but he's OK. That's the highest you're going to get. That that mindset and how do you get there when you're an ad, it, you're such an adversary in their mind? You have to you have to change that mindset to where um, they're willing to open up and tell you about mistakes they made. And the ideal situation is they tell you before they're big. Yeah, catch them when they're small. Now, as a manager, a senior manager, if you aren't if you don't have a communication style that allows people to tell you about problems at the uh, you know in the beginning you're it's going to blow up at the end you'll yeah. find out about it but it'll be way too late in in my field the famous example of this is Nokia um mm-hmm. who obviously like they've lost loads of market share they aren't doing very well and it's because executives in the beginning when the iPhone w- w- was coming out no one everyone was too afraid to say like this is going to be big we need to change and then obviously history happened and now it's iPhone and Samsung and all of that. And they're consigned to the bin of mobile phone history. Yeah, it's 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 difficult um, because you have to you have to create an environment where people are uh, not afraid to tell you the, the you know, the, the the uncomfortable things to talk about the things that things are not kind of going right. Uh, one of the things that I was doing in Iraq, I. I it was an overwhelming experience. I went from Asia where I was a singleton security officer, basically, you know, uh, doing a jack of all trades, hitting everything, doing everything myself. And then I got posted to Iraq where I've got hundreds of people working for me. I've got I'm, I'm in charge of the security for every CIA person in Iraq. And we are all over the place. We are on bases all over the country. Uh, it's a daunting task. And. I, at first, I tried to, you know, I tried to do use my my normal skills, which is do everything. And I realized that oh, it's not going to be possible. So I had to start to really um, maximize the support of my uh, people. And 
I knew I wasn't getting enough information and enough assistance just doing the nat the, the normal me delegating. So I started uh, holding staff meetings, and, and I remember the first one vividly. I I I looked at all my um, my my security personnel, and we had people who were posted for a year, and we had a lot of people who were just coming in for six weeks. So they're in and out, and all kinds of uh, of skill sets. We're talking about. Uh, former special forces guys, um, police officers, full of security careerists, all types of, uh, of people. And so I, I said to him, I said, okay, I need you to, to, to look at our program and tell me, you know, what areas we need work, what areas you think we're doing well. And at first, nobody would say a word mm. because the environment, they didn't know what the environment. So Finally, I, somebody nudged out something, uh, a comment about how we were, um, you know, a, a little bit of a problem we had with parking our cars in case the fire trucks had to move in. And so I, I immediately wrote this down and the, the moment we, the meeting was over, I implemented it. So the next staff meeting, the word went out that he actually listened. He actually did, yeah. did something. And I started getting turning it into a culture of everybody, whether you're, it's, if your first day or your last day, you can contribute. And I got such good information. Now I didn't always, not, not, I didn't always get good plans from them. Sometimes it was stuff that was so trivial or, or it was, it, you know, wasn't something that, that I could make work because of a logistical thing or a procedural thing. But, um, if there was any chance that I could make it happen, I would. And, Everybody just uh, the the mindset changed to where um, they were they were willing to tell me I don't think this process is working correctly, and especially the newbies. I would pull them aside and say, "Okay, you're new here. I want you to take a look at our processes and ask questions. And if you don't get a satisfactory answer on why we do something, I want you to come talk to me because that means that there is a hole in our boat. Just because we've always done it is a horrible." Uh, answer to any question. And so the new people, they see stuff that you don't, you don't realize. We have an analogy of, of uh, a gorilla uh, sitting on the couch eating your popcorn with you while you watch TV. You can't even see him, but he's there. And some new people come in and go, Who, who's the gorilla? <laughs> You're going to go, what gorilla? And there he is. And uh, it's amazing the things that you don't see after a while and somebody new can shed a light on it. Yeah. And to, to be honest, this kind of blows my mind a little bit because my and it's a very kind of British, like informed by American television point of view is the CIA is a very command and control organization. So very kind of like you do what you're told, you don't ask questions, you just like carry on. But it, it sounds like that's not the case. You know, you, you implemented a huge amount of modern leadership principles that are about asking questions about having a safe psychological environment for everyone yes and and i will have to tell you <laughs> it wasn't from uh from all the leadership training classes i got because i got most of those when i was already well into my management career it was a little late and that was why one of my principles uh early on is know thyself it's and yeah. and that's a that's a direct um push towards certain things you can do to help your career like for example the myers-briggs uh, personality indicator and um some of these other tests they can tell you so many different things about your style 
that can help you for the rest of your career. It's no good getting that when you're you know, a year out from retirement. Um, and uh, that, so, so that's that's critical. And the the organization are uh, it's, has to be because of the way it's set up, the agency has to be relatively agile. But there are parts of it that are mired in in um, you know you'll do as you're told. But when you're in the war zones, the closer you get to the to the pointy end of the spear, as we say, it, the the more flexible you are because there's a the the, the organization was built with a little more of uh, sensitivity to the ground truth. Yeah. For example, headquarters elements are always big and unwieldy and full of bureaucracy. But when you get out to the field, the structure is set up so that the, uh, the CIA senior person in a country, they, they're called chief of station. The, the chief of station gets latitude with headquarters. Basically, headquarters towers down to the chief. Because he has the ground truth. And it's a system that was put, you know, it was developed because of the nature of the business. And in most cases, you know, headquarters dictates everything to the field. In our case, uh, unless it's an unusual circumstance, the field dictates to the headquarters element. Yeah, because I guess if something's happening really fast on the ground, you don't have time to kind of wait for permission yes. to do something. You've just got to act. So there is a, there's a level of autonomy at the field level. When you go back to headquarters, you're... What I used to do things in the field that would, would take three levels back in headquarters to buy off on. And that's one of the, what's one of the frustrating things about working. When you go back to, the, to yeah. the headquarters element, it's like, oh, my, I am mirrored in bureaucracy. And that's why a lot of people who, who really get into the mission part, they, they are attracted to the field. Yeah. It's where they want to work. And so this is a question that I ask everyone who comes on the show um, and I think your perspective on this will be particularly interesting. But what does resilience mean to you? Well, that's a, it's it's an awesome word. It, it it encompasses so many different things. It's it it strikes me as flexibility, adaptability, psychological aspects that are critical to your actual ability to do those to be adaptable. So you have to have a mindset where not only are you working the mission, but you're, you've got to work, you've got to take care of yourself and the people around you. The exact opposite of that is if you, if you really are so mission driven that you forget that you got to have people to do the mission and you forget about taking care of them, eventually your mission is going to fail. Mm-hmm. So the resilience part means um, your ability to absorb the ups and downs. Anybody, it's all easy when everything goes well. It's, it's. How do you react when things start to, to go bump? And, and how do your people react? How do you lead when you're dealing with a crisis? I knew you'd have a really good answer. No, that, that, and I think the people aspect of it, I think sometimes people think resilience is just limited to them, but resilience is the resilience of the system, of the organization, of society. It's more than just one part of that. Yes, and, it, and your, your network is critical. One part of it I talk about is, it's a little late to get to know people during a crisis, but it's so important during a crisis if you already know them, if you've met them, if you've had coffee with them. The difference in how things are able to smoothly go into play in a crisis, it's amazing the difference. And I haven't been through lots of crises where, you know, sometimes I had a chance to, to, to work with, to know, get to know a little bit the people that I'm going to work with in a crisis. And sometimes I haven't. 
and there's no comparison. Just even something as much as as a little, hi, how you doing? To have a cup of coffee, that can make a huge difference when you're in the middle of crisis. Yeah, because at the end of the day, you're working with people, and you, oh, yes. and having social interactions is so important to humans and in kind of human decision making as well. Absolutely, I think w- w- an interesting part of of this uh, discussion is there's that it shows a different side of my book. Um, there are a lot of books out there that are pretty much like historical. Mine's a, mine is a historical memoir, but it it delves into multiple areas. It taught, you know, leadership principles, and that's part of the development of my career. But the overall theme of my book was my career was uh, keeping people safe, and there's a variety of ways you do that. And I talk about different aspects of that, and and um, while I also talk about terrorism and some of the, the exposed some things about the, the CIA that have never been exposed before, uh, a unit that, that was in the shadows for, for much of its existence, only came out during the, the attack in Benghazi. So my book, Guardian Life in the Crosshairs of the CIA's War on Terror, there's a lot of, um, of not only historical documentary type information there, but there's also what does it mean to be in these events as a human and how does that affect your family? when you're out in the front lines and they're back home worrying about you. Well, that was fascinating. Uh, thanks so much to Thomas for coming on and sharing all of that. And uh, as as he mentioned, you can find out more in his book, which I have a feeling is worth a read. So I really hope you enjoyed this episode. And there's a lot more to come down the line as we roll out season two. We're going to be releasing a episode per week, which is a pretty ambitious goal. Um, but I am really excited to speak to lots of people and there'll be some solo episodes again with myself. But what would be extremely helpful is if you could leave a rating and or a review of the podcast on the platform of your choice. It just gives me some feedback that you're enjoying things or not enjoying things. And also because of, you know, algorithms and all of that fun stuff, it means more people can find the podcast and hopefully listen to it and enjoy it and get something out of it. So I'm going to leave things there and I will see you next week in our next episode of season two.